Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Let's take this outside with Marianne Iveson, the podcast where she speaks to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about why they connect with nature. Jill Wheatley is an athlete and mountain climber currently climbing the world's 14 peaks above 8,000 meters, but with only 30% of her vision. She is a competitive cyclist and runner from Thunder Bay, Ontario, who worked as a physical education teacher. She traveled the world teaching until 2014, where she suffered a traumatic brain injury that took 70% of her vision and nearly her life. Jill's long road to recovery has brought her to peaks like K2 and the only Canadian female to summit six mountains above 8,000 meters. She aims to break down the stigma associated with traumatic brain injury, vision loss, and eating disorders. Please enjoy my conversation with the very inspirational Jill Wheatley. Jill Wheatley, thank you for uh, thank you for joining me. I'm like a kid in a candy store right now. <laughs> Oh, that's so nice to hear. Thanks so much for having me. You're in Canmore. And one of my favorite things about having to work around guest schedules is when they're like, I'm ice climbing or I've escaped into nature for like 87 days and I'll be back eventually. For you, it's ice climbing and then you're going to Nepal next month. So we had to like squeeze this in. That's right. Yeah. Today's the first day. Actually, I checked the calendar this morning. It's been like 23 days since I've had a date in Canmore. More around Christmas time when I didn't have anyone to play with. <laughs> I feel super fortunate to talk to you. You have an incredible story, but let's go back to the early days. You're from Northern Ontario and you grew up being very active outdoors. Let's start from the beginning. Yeah. So, I mean, it is long, it's complex. So I have an older brother and older sister. My parents, we were always active. Skiing was sort of our, our sport of choice in the winter, mostly, although my brother, there was hockey and then camping all, all summer. And then throughout, I was training for the skiing, running. There was some field hockey in high school, like a little bit of soccer here and there. But then really sort of, I think skiing sort of brought me to the mountains where I found really my passion for for all things winter and ended up moving after college, moved, uh, moved overseas and fell in love with the Alps. Spent some time in Switzerland and Germany, which I'm sure we'll get to. But yeah, backcountry skiing was sort of my my, where my heart always is. And then with that trail running sort of turned into mountain running and long distance cycling. At first I, I thought road cycling would be really boring, but then living in Switzerland, uh, it turns out very far from that. Um, and I would spend hours, days on my bike. Yeah. And so was competing in long distance duathlons just before my life took a big turn. Uh, a long time since I've been on an outdoor bike. Yeah, those routes and skiing and on the ski hill, I think, prepared me for lots in life. Just training and uh, work ethic. And yeah, just a passion for the outdoors and healthy lifestyle modeled by my parents. I'm so glad that you had that growing up because you realize like when you grow up in it, because for me, like I've told this story a bunch of times on this podcast, but like I grew up on a farm. So I spent a lot of time outside. So I think your childhood has a huge impact on what you're doing doing later in life. But your your life led to you teaching 
phys ed in Germany. Where was like the trajectory of your life going? You're clearly an athlete. You were competing. Like where, where was your life heading? I had actually thought I was going, thought because society sort of led me to believe that I should be moving up the ladder in education. So not just being a PE teacher, but being like a head of department and then a principal director of curriculum. But thankfully, I kind of hit a point where I realized, no, this is not for me. And I'm not going to go and follow along what I feel like I what society is telling me I should be doing, but rather following my heart and my passion. And I think that really showed in my teaching um, where students see me sort of, I mean, with respect, but also, you know, not necessarily as a peer, but they would see me and my passion for sport as I taught it. And they would feed off that, the energy, because, you know, I actually really do enjoy doing what I'm doing and being outside, being on the field with the students or running in the forest, you know, making running fun for for kids who may not enjoy it. Yeah. So at that time I was able to, I was living on a farm in Bavaria, uh, very picturesque. I could ride my bike or run to work, like run about 15 K or do like a, a couple hour bike ride before I would go to the international school where I worked, teach sport all day and cycle home during the work week. And then actually some coaching. So between different schools, coaching skiing and coaching cross country and track and field. But then, yeah, my weekends, I had the very stereotypical Subaru in Europe where I had a road bike on one side and the mountain bike on the other side of the roof, skis, snowshoes in the back, just a variety of choice where I could just drive like within half an hour in Germany, like the Bavarian Alps and just decide what the depending on what the weather's like, what I want to do or do a couple of things in one day. Yeah. So that's how, how life was. I had found, found a, a, what I felt was a balance. Like professionally, I wasn't actually enjoying what I was doing because, because I was passionate about, about the subject area, you know, health and, and trying to, yeah, just share that passion with the next generation and then making the most of, you know, what, what teaching offers. And that is the weekends and the holidays where I could travel and build on that sport and even at a level where I was competing. I just want to kind of dive right into it. 2014, you're living in Bavaria. What what happened? Well, it was the second second week of school, one of those September days. I mean, the four seasons, just like Canada. And it was, yeah, a kind of overcast Wednesday morning. And my colleagues were not really keen to take their lessons outside as planned as they, you know, sort of clouds hovering, potential for rain. And whereas me, you know, going back to those roots in Northern Ontario and just bundling up no matter how cold it is or putting on a raincoat. And I just thought I would, you know, I'd rather get out and have that fresh air and the time outside than be in a cramped gym where I, you know, modifying lessons. And so, yeah, we went outside. It was a 10th grade. So these students were about 16, about 21 of them from all over the world. So this this school, basically international kids whose parents were either a lot of diplomats, international bankers, lawyers, athletes playing a sport in Germany. So they came from a variety of countries together. We all spoke English. That was sort of, that was our, our mode of communication. So the lesson, we did our warm up. I'm looking down on the field. Like I remember it as if I'm like an, an eagle looking down on the field. And basically students were, we were broken up into three kind of learning centers where we're working on skills. We had been building up to connecting. So, you know, connecting tennis ball and a tennis racket or a badminton birdie and a badminton racket. And this day was baseball and baseball bats and baseballs. Everybody was doing what they were supposed to be doing. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't change anything. I really feel the setup was exactly, you know, I had planned it out that way, but just a complete fluke accident where I'm sort of standing at, for those that know baseball, I'm at the equivalent of third base 
sort of looking into left field with one small group and a boy who was sort of at the equivalent of home plate uh, moving, trying to hit in the direction of sort of right field, just a complete wrong direction. And the ball hit me in the side of the head on the right hand side of my head. And I knew instantly something was really, really wrong and uh, I needed help. I, I have like in and out memory from that time. I remember being taken to hospital. I remember a doctor being in my face. I do remember sitting on the field. I remember a colleague running from the school right in my face. I remember bright lights, stainless steel and green hospital scrubs. I remember being in my friend's car and feeling like I was in a washing machine because it just felt like my head was 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 shaking like that. Yeah, so they they had I guess done the the concussion test where I like you're, you're competing enough of the correct what they were looking for or what they felt was passable and sent me home. So again, coming back to that farm above a barn, the cows are below me. I'm in a little wood loft by myself. And that, so that was a Wednesday and that coming weekend, I was, uh, a friend was coming from the UK. He was going to drive me to Switzerland where I had previously lived. And we were going to the world duathlon championships, 50 K run, 150 K cycle, another 20 K run in the, like I, I was, I was fit. So I thought, because the doctors in the ER sent me home with a black eye. And at the moment of impact, my eye closed and actually blew up about the size of a mm, baseball. So a black eye. I'm at home with a black eye, in and out of consciousness, vomiting. But in my mind, the doctors told me that I just have a black eye. So I need to toughen up. Like, come on, Wheatley. Like, Get out there. Like, it's just a black eye. You can run. You can ride a bike. They're the medical experts. You're just a sporty teacher. And so you're going to, of course, you're going to race this weekend. Anyway, when when Chris came back, he uh, my friend came to take me. He instead took me right back to that hospital where they put me in an ambulance, apparently in shock. I don't really remember this part. My black eye has never reopened. And in addition to being a black eye, my skull was actually fractured. Like, so the impact uh, fractured my skull and my brain was bleeding and swelling while I was at home by myself. And there, and they put you through concussion protocol and said, go home. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, very light, very light concussion protocol. And your brain is bleeding. Yeah. So I had, so the, the black eye, like for the next I don't know. I don't know how many days, to be honest. My face, I guess the viewers can't see me, but the blood went from my eye. And because my brain was bleeding, the blood, you could just see it moving all across my, every day you would see more and more. And you're like, I'm fine. <laughs> the doctor said I was fine. Right. They, they said I'm fine. So I'm like, it's just a black eye. Toughen up. But you knew, right? Like deep down in your heart, you knew you're like, something's wrong. I knew something had to be, had to be wrong. You know, growing up, probably a little black eye, you know, where you get the little mark under your eye from mm -hmm. actually being hit maybe or bumping. Mm -hmm. But I knew there was something different. And so then the next four months were in that neurointensive care and they were focused on the brain then and just kept telling me that the eye is going to be okay because once this bleeding stops and all the blood clears, things are going to open up and you're going to be able to control your eye again. And so their focus was on the brain. The eye is going to be okay, but then it wasn't. And then it, they would say, okay, two more weeks. 
two more weeks. And they just kept pushing these goalposts. And with every push of the goalposts, my hope and my frustration just deteriorated. Like I was just getting so frustrated with these false promises and just felt like nobody understands, like nobody gets it. And at the same time, you know, while I had been at home, I was in my own vomit. I couldn't get up to like, to clean stuff up or get a garbage can or anything like that. And so with that, and along with the area of my brain responsible for nutrition or for appetite, lost any sense of appetite. You know, I've had a horrific relationship with food ever since, and I just could not take in anything. Then they were focused on the brain and they sort of were letting the eating go, but like making sure I was eating, but not enough. And I was just deteriorating in every sense. And my brain's trying to heal, but it's not being nourished. And so I'd be sent like to the eye hospital and then to, you know, the, the cognitive stuff. And then the, the nutrition would be sliding. And then sent me, they sent me home for a couple of weeks and I wouldn't eat. Like I full stop. I, I could not convince myself that I actually needed to eat. And part of it, you know, my brain is damaged. I'm convincing myself, you know, I've got all of these cognitive issues going on. I'm, I'm losing my fitness. I'm not doing any exercise, so I don't really need to eat. This is what I'm telling myself. Meanwhile, my brain is trying to heal from a traumatic injury without being nourished, you know, and so there's specialists for that. But then, you know, all of the specialists are in different places and nobody, re- I just kept getting handed off to different, but nobody ever sort of taking responsibility for the whole picture. And things just kept getting darker and darker. And, you know, they said she's not going to survive three days, you know, without this, like being hooked up to these machines that are going to feed her the medicine that are going to give her the nutrition. And I was like, no, thank you. Like that's three days too many. I didn't want to live to see another day. If I'm going to have to live with, a disability, not being able to drive, have the autonomy, you know, the independence of the life that I've just been talking about, been sharing, you know, then no, thanks. I'm out of here. I'm, I'm done. You know, I didn't think that life was worth fighting for at all. So thankfully those, those doctors, the medical teams across seven different hospitals and healthcare centers in three countries <laughs> over 26 months, they didn't give up on me. You know, I certainly felt like they did at times just tossing me between others and, and my family because they didn't give up on me is the reason I'm here talking to you today. Not because if it was up to me, you know, every tube had been pulled out every two. I had, I did things that are probably not even appropriate to talk about. So if I understand correctly, you had this physical injury, which was the impact of the, of the ball to your head, which affected your eye. You had the brain injury, which essentially took away your appetite. So you stopped eating on top of, you know, I, I know, I know that brain injuries have a slew of, in, a slew of side effects, not side effects of other effects that you like would take you eight hours to describe. Right. Well, that's a, that's funny you say eight hours because there was a time when I would have eight hours of therapy a day and that would be you know, for the cognitive, for the physical, for the physio, for the psychological, you know, all of these different therapies trying to help me. Well, at that time they said recover. And I don't feel like you recover from a brain injury because 
well, I don't actually want to go back to anything. You know, I feel I've learned and, and gained so much from it. But yeah, so it, yeah, it, to, to describe everything from like what you mentioned and, and the TBI itself, like the cognitive function, my attention and my memory and the motor function, things like coordination and balance. My, I have no depth perception anymore. Like my vision only comes from the bottom of my left eye and you need two eyes to work together to measure depth. So adjusting to that, like basically learning to walk properly because for a long time it was wheelchair and then trying to stand up but everything is just off kilter because I can't see properly and I can't raise my eye on the left side above the horizon so I'm just tilting my head and then my body's getting all out of a line yeah and then other stuff like sensation my hearing was just I feel it was escalated because, you know, with the loss of vision I feel that that's one sense that I was just so, so sensitive to noise And then there's the emotional stuff, like the anxiety, like the cycle of acceptance. I don't even really like to refer it to as a cycle. There's not much cyclical about accepting what sort of come in the wake of my brain injury. Yeah, just some some really dark stuff with respect to the emotions. And I mean, I used to think PTSD had something to do only with, you know, with war and guns. That's not the case. (laughs) I've definitely learned that. It's complex, to say the least. There are, and we talked about this even before I hit record, a thousand different directions that we can go on this. But your adversity, your inspiration, and where you are now, which we're going to talk about in like just a second. Like, I think anyone listening to this right now and hearing that and hearing pretty much your vision's taken away, your life looks like it's completely ruined from this accident you're probably feeling isolated. You're not, you know, you're not home, right? All those feelings that you felt, no one would, no one blames you for, like when no one would blame you for those dark, dark moments. I, I have a feeling that, you know, you've been through a lot and you've come out like a long way, but if I was to guess, you probably still have moments. Absolutely. I mean, and that is why when I decided to start sharing and it took a long time, to start like my website and and using social media to help people direct people to my website that one I finally shifted that perspective to see you know by sharing how I can actually help other people I'm all in like I'm not going to pretend that every day is a sunny summit you know at the top of one of the world's highest mountains and I think that that is the what people connect to, to being real, being authentic, being vulnerable, like that vulnerability is where I feel that I can help other people. Adversity is going to look different to every single human. It's not going to necessarily be traumatic brain injury, vision loss and eating disorder, but every human has their own challenges, you know, whether it be job loss or a different type of health issue, relationship issues, challenges at work, human interaction, everyone's got their own struggles, their own challenges. And if I share the chapters of my story that continue from this point that was so, so dark to where I am now, you know, it's, there's no point in sharing and pretending that it's, it's all good. Like I have hard times all the time. Like it's, it's normal. And I think the best way to break down the stigma like associated with mental health and, and everything, I mean, with respect to traumatic brain injury and, and any disability is to talk about it. You know, education is the way to break down stigma. You know, I'm not a teacher in the sense that I used to be, you know, by being vulnerable, but being authentic, that I can teach others a little bit about um, impermanence, about 
possibility and perspective, like what really is important and uh, how we respond to adversity or to challenge is our choice. You know, I've chose, I I didn't choose my brain injury. I didn't choose to lose 70% of my eyesight, but I do have the opportunity to choose how I respond to it. Do you, uh, I'm assuming you read Brene Brown? I do. <laughs> Actually, a lot of, a lot uh, in, in therapy is when I was introduced to, to Brene Brown, yeah. Yeah, I um, I can always tell when someone else comes from the school of Brene Brown, the empathy and the compassion and the way you look at life. So I think it's beautiful. So thank you for sharing that. <laughs> Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Let's take this outside with Marianne Iveson. So not only did you, I was, I'm putting recover in air quotes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like you learned how to, you know, walk again. You learned how to navigate your life again. But then you took it 5 billion steps further. <laughs> now you're ice climbing. You are climbing mountains, literally the highest mountains in the world. And I'm sure there's a whole story with that, but I do want to just jump to what is vision 8,000 and would you have done something like this before your injury? I don't think I would have ever thought it was even possible for me to do this before my injury. Um, And it's just the way that life has evolved. It's not like I came out of hospital and said, Oh, I'm going to like jump to the world's 14 highest peaks. So the final hospital, the final healthcare the last seven months were in Colorado. For so many months, I could see the Colorado Rockies, the mountains from my hospital bed. And I was just so angry at that point. I was still just livid. I didn't want to be there. I didn't feel like I needed to be there. And I would just say to the doctors, like, just let me go. I'll figure it out. Just like, let me go. I'll, I want to go to those mountains and I'll just figure it out. That's what they say. Like, what are you going to do? I'll figure it out. I was just angry and I'd throw stuff and break stuff. And one gentle doctor, and this has only come within the last few years that I've actually put this memory together. Dr. Mailer was the head of the unit I was on at Denver Health. And he said, Jill, this is your Everest. He's like, I know you have a connection to the outdoors and to mountains. He's like, but I want you to think of this as an expedition. And we're your team, you know, no one climbs a mountain alone, but we're your expedition team. And every one of us on the team has a certain part, you know, but we're all going to work together to help you get to that summit. And then on your way, you know, after it doesn't end at the summit, but 
you know, his gentle approach, he was so kind. And I, I really realized the connection. He had done his homework. But at that time, still, I was like, just get me out of here. Like, you took it literally. But at that time, like, I, I didn't at the time. But then it, like, came back. I was walking in Kumbu the first time I went to the Everest region. And my friend said, hey, you know, if you look through those trees, do you know what mountain that is? And it was like, at that moment, like a sparklet. I'm like, Dr. Mailer talked about Everest and that's Everest I can see. And anyway, um, I, I had just put it on the shelf until then. And that spark ignited. So my first time in Kumbu, so sorry, just back a little bit after being out of hospital, not knowing what to do, I couldn't live in Germany because, well, my visa depended on my job. I was no longer able to, to work. So they took away my residency. My apartment had been given up. My car had been sold. I had no driver's license because you can't drive with the 30% vision. So I was so lost. And the only sign I could really see pointed towards mountains. I just thought I'll be away from everything society tells us we where we should be, what we should be doing, what we should look like, how we should be, you know, what titles we should have. I'm out of here. So I was so relieved to get out of hospital and from that like one-to-one care for so long, but then I was lost. And so, yeah, the sign pointed to mountains. So I decided for one year I would travel. I'm doing this like a circle around the globe, 13 different massifs. Um, to avoid winter, because with my vision and lack of depth perception, I thought, not a chance I will ever be somewhere where there's winter or snow, because I can't walk through that. I went through Nepal, so I went through Europe, and then India, northern the Indian Himalaya, and then Nepal. was with a friend who convinced me to do a trail race. This is 10 months at a hospital, and the Annapurna 100 is... <laughs> pretty high mountain race and I just thought oh I'll just appease them and just register and then I thought if I get to myself to the start line that's huge because it starts in the middle of the night and I can't see a thing in the daylight never mind the dark anyway I got myself to the start line and then I got to myself to the finish line and it was like a fairy tale how though how did you how did you like navigate that well the the one thing I focused on was I knew the sun was going to come up if it had started at night, like uh, sunset, but this, it started, I think, at four in the morning, maybe three. But I knew at like five o'clock the sun was going to come. Yeah, I just started and there was nothing, nothing that was going to stop me. And, you know, I I love hills. I just I prefer climbing and going up. And it just I just had this energy that I could never imagine. Like still to this day, I just think, oh, my gosh, I can't believe how well that went. And the race director said, hey, what are you doing in a couple of weeks? There's a race around Manislu. It's the it's a stage race. So Manislu is the world's eighth highest mountain. I had no idea at the time. I couldn't tell you any 8,000 meter peak at the time other than Everest because that's what everybody knows. And I thought, no, sorry, I'm flying. I'm doing this thing. I'm going to New Zealand next week. And then I went to bed that night and I'm like, what are you thinking? Of course you do. So I stayed, I changed my ticket and it was one of the best decisions I've ever made. I ran around Manislu and I met some of the most incredible people that really helped shift my perspective and fall in love with the Himalayas. And then I knew I wanted to stay in Nepal longer. So I continued my travels. And then that one year of thinking that I would have life figured out and know what direction I was going to go. 
I mean, here I am. And now, and that was 2017. The second year back to Nepal, to the Everest region, that's where I spotted Everest for the first time, was really intrigued with the altitude, did the three passes, which is like multi-day trek over three passes that are about 5,500 meters. I saw Amadablam, which if any climbers listening probably know, it's one of the most technical uh, 7,000 meter climbs and most stunning mountains in the world. Can I quickly say that it was on my way up to base camp that it's my favorite mountain. It is my, so when I saw that you climbed it, because I saw it in your, in your bio, I got so excited because it's visually stunning. It's like a visually stunning, beautiful, prominent mountain in the Himalayas. And, and that's just it. Like I, I, it's not like a biased, oh, I climbed it. It's the most beautiful, but no, like I think. No, it's like legit the most beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Like the Matterhorn um, in Europe. But Amadablam, I would say globally. <laughs> At that time, I had, I wasn't running. I had got, it's kind of another side, side chapter. I got pneumonia, so I couldn't run the three passes, but I trekked. But slowing down and not looking at my watch, I was actually looking at these mountains and stopping and having conversations with people rather than just focusing on getting to the next village faster. And conversations with climbers and and guides and I was just really intrigued by what they did and so I thought okay I've I've, you know I've been running over 5,000 meters running hiking fast hiking and so I decided I would try my first 6,000 meter 6,500 and it went really really well it was so fun island peak if anyone many people know in Nepal often used to acclimatize for higher peaks and it went so well that I decided I would just go and get a permit like literally and then the next day go and climb another one, which I did. But I guess it turned out probably peak to peak, maybe four or five days. So I climbed Island Peak in Labuche within a week. And then then I knew I, I wanted to try something a little bit more technical. But I've really come into it backwards. Like a lot of climbers like work up their life, like they're rock climbers and have done all the technical training. But I had not done that. Like I literally just kind of walked into this. But with good people and prime location, you know, I've sort of been learning skills along the way. And yeah, so I, I was able to climb Amadablam right after the pandemic. Extremely special because permits had just opened up. The country's airport wasn't even open. And we were able to summit, my friend and I, alone. Like nobody gets to stand on top of the most beautiful mountain in the world with nobody else there. Like we had the camps, which are renowned for being like on the literally like, like the edge of cliffs, essentially. And we had it to ourselves. So, you know, moments finding so much serendipity in my story. And I mean, to add more drama to this story, my, my dad actually died while I was climbing Amadablam back in Canada. I'm sorry. No, but it, it turns out like I knew there was, the country was closed, like borders were still closed. I couldn't come back, but I say this, like, be, I say this because I found so much strength with that additional, like, I guess mixing the the grief, but also I just felt so close to my dad. And I knew that I was ready for something more. And so I decided if I'm going to try an 8,000 meter peak, that it should be Manislu because, well, one, it's recognized as one of the easy 8,000ers, but also I thought it was kind of special that I had run around it. So maybe I would just try going up it. So within a year, so last September, I, I climbed Manislu, the world's eighth highest mountain, and got to the true summit. My traumatic brain injury set me up for something in terms of perspective. Like climbing an 8,000 meter peak, yes, there were hard moments, 
but nothing compared to what I've been through as a result of all that came, you know, the avalanche that came in the wake of my TBI. And so when moments get tough, you know, the weather gets bad or you're stuck in a tent and it's blowing minus 40 degrees, I'm choosing to be there. You know, I've chosen this challenge and I choose how I respond to it. I didn't have that opportunity with my brain injury. And when I was descending Manislu, I could tell you exactly where I was. Like the moment it was just like, there's got to be more to this. You know, I want more of a challenge. I'm going to try all 14. So I went down and I talked to Mingma, who is the expedition leader that he owns the company that I climb with. And he was just extremely encouraging. And we sat down with a calendar and mapped it out. So like the, the name just came to me at the same time, like Vision 8000. It's perfect. It's a great name. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't even, it doesn't need a name, but yeah, it has to have this name. And yeah, so we sat down with the calendar and, and mapped out 14 peaks within, within two years from start to finish. And so I, two years. Oh yeah. So I did, I've done, well, the idea was seven last year, seven this year. And, uh-huh. and I got six because Nanga Prabhat, our yeah. last expedition, we had incredibly challenging conditions and avalanches had us walking away, but safely. And we all, everyone survived. Everyone is healthy. So I didn't get my seven summits this year, but I got six. So now I have eight. That's crazy. <laughs> so, and I want to point out too, you're the only Canadian Canadian female to summit six mountains above 8,000 meters. I want to point that out very quickly. Yeah. I, and I don't do this for records at all. And it took someone else telling me that no one's actually summited more than four. And but which is that's cool, but it's not the reason I do it. <laughs> and if you know, I I hope that people don't think of me and think of records, but they think of wow, like that, like that's taking adversity and choosing to do something with it. <laughs> can I can I ask you something very like? I hope this isn't too personal, but I want to know like when you're climbing and with your seventy percent vision loss, like what? Just so people can imagine, like you say you did mention you know I can see the mountains like what can you see like what are are you able to navigate if you don't mind me asking no okay so uh I think I mentioned depth perception is non-existent but I've adapted so I can see colors and I use colors I use different shapes I use other people's body movements and light to to measure distance so basically if you take your if you take your right hand and cover your right eye, or any hand, cover your right eye, and now put the top of your hand over the top of your left eye, and then you have a bit at the bottom. Uh huh. That's what I see. <laughs> <laughs> it's just... Now get up and try to walk. <laughs> no, I'm not. We're in the middle of a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. Yeah, I just think like I've adapted. I don't fall as much as I used to, but I could write a book about you know, the stories of falling, running, walking, but especially downhill, because, you know, you tend to want to go for your body, gravity pulls you faster downhill. And so tripping, I miss roots and rocks because of the shadows, because of the light. That's why I was asking, like, you might, you know, right. But you might have to be so precise when you're like, when you're mountaineering, right? With like, with, with all the gear. So you must like, it's incredible how much the body can adapt. It is. And with time and I'm, I'm like you, you said before when I was talking about just being authentic and, and vulnerable 
I don't like, I don't like to ask for help. I want to be independent. I want to do everything myself, but I do like, I get frustrated because especially like the downhill, you know, when we're, you've summited, but the hard part for me is actually getting back down, like coming off K2, the most technical mountain in the world. There's a lot of rock to navigate and yeah, we have ropes and, and there's fixed lines, but you know, you ha- you still have to change your gear at every, at every different rope and, and you've got crampons and feet and rocks and things falling. Yeah, it, it's descending that is difficult, like visually, but then in my mind too, the mountains of my mind are really t- most challenging going down. Like I can hold my own with pace and strength going up, but coming down, that mentally is is a mountain. Like I want to be quicker. I want to be more efficient downhill. And, you know, I, I'm not putting my arms out. I I mean, I'm sure I still do, but I don't notice it. Like those first um, months year in hospital, just getting used to walking again. But yeah, so I use different cues than a full-sided climber. That's for sure. And I definitely am not the fastest one to descend. You just said that descending was maybe your biggest challenge. So by the way, you know, you've done K2, like K2 is renowned for being maybe the hard, you can confirm it for me. So you still have eight, right? So you have eight mountains left. What do you look as other than, I don't know, 70% vision loss and going through this? Other than that, what do you find going to be your biggest challenges finishing them? Because I I have no doubt that you're going to do this. If you've done K2 already, if you've done like seven, six of them already, like you're going to do it. Yeah. Oh, I I, I will do it. (laughs) It's just a matter of um, mother nature cooperating, really. I mean, there's the things I have to let go of the things I can't control. And that's the reason I didn't get seven done this year is because, you know, weather conditions. My first one of the season is going to be uh, about six weeks from now. I'll start Annapurna and it's notorious for avalanches and just severe weather. So that that'll be the biggest challenge. But not far behind that is actually Everest and not because of its height or because of its reputation, but because of the number of people going to it. I've I've mentioned or alluded to at least, you know, groups, society, sort of being alone in nature. And that's part of the reason I do climb or how I ended up in the mountains is, you know, to be away from that. And Everest has turned into a bit of a circus, which I prefer not to be associated with, but it is part of my project. And, and I have to just use that challenge and I'll work through it. It's, it's just a different, a different challenge than a lot of the other mountains that people have no idea, you know, the Kachinjunga and Dalagari, who most people have have never heard of, are more technical, a little bit, you know, they're more challenging to climb than Everest, but I was able to do it like with next to nobody there. So that will, that'll be a challenge. And then the third thing, financially, this is like, I'm not able to do it. I, I was going to ask, how can people support you? Like how, like how, how, how can you get this done? Do you have sponsors? Like, how can people help you? <laughs> Wishful thinking. My my sister has set up a GoFundMe page, um, but I understand like not every people don't have a lot of money to give. But so there, there's been a little bit there. Um, I've had some sponsors in terms of gear, like backpacks, my jewel bow, my sunglasses and goggles. Yeah. So Hyperlight's given me packs. Lakey has given me some gloves and and like trail running poles, mount or skiing poles, mountain climbing poles. So, so, and Himali um, has given me like my down suit and some, some jackets and gear, but that doesn't pay the expedition fees. And so thankfully Mingma has been my, my expedition leader. He's just been very gracious in terms of time and trusting that, you know, I will get the money eventually, but 
yeah, I, I wouldn't be able to do it otherwise. And I, and I, I keep things simple, like the people that are, you know, on the extravagant Everest, like five star, that's not me. <laughs> I don't go, you know, for the, the luxurious expeditions, uh, keeping it basic though. And it's still expensive by the time, like for the, for the permits, for the, uh, transportation for the guiding for the food the com- you know everything along the way it's I'll be sure to po- I'll be sure to post and I think getting your story out I don't know if I I'm not sure my podcast can do that but I think the more people you tell like there's got to be a company out there that's like oh my gosh this is like an incredible story and we want to support her in her in her journey in Vision 8000 there's got to be a smart company that that would want to do that well, I mean, the the idea is like, I, I do, like, I'm not expecting nothing. Like if, if people are willing to fi- financially help me, you know, I'm, I'm more than happy to, you know, share light with their communities or internationally, you know, with the way technology is now I can, I can share along the way I can write, I can talk, I can take your flag on these high mountains. You know, if, if our values align, then I'm all into like partnerships and, and having others on board for sure. I do have one more question for you because this has been like very inspirational. I say eye-opening chat. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Love it. Yes. I'm so sorry. No, don't say sorry. That That's so good because I, that could be another whole podcast. Like the one-eyed comedian is what I t- tend to talk <laughs> Because for years... Uh, Marian, I could not joke. Like if somebody said that, I would be so angry and pissed off. Now I'm the first one to make the jokes. Like I think it's healthy and people get Good. uncomfortable. I'm like, no, like this, you know, joking and laughing reality is, it's a good thing. <laughs> On a more serious note, how has your connection to nature changed? Uh, your connection to earth? You saw, my question was, have your other senses changed? You mentioned your hearing's better, but how has your connection to the world around you and nature changed since the, since the injury and in your expeditions? I think just the appreciation for the serenity and silence and also putting thing in, things into perspective. Like when you're climbing in the Karakoram in Pakistan or in the Himalayas in Nepal or India, as far as the eye can see, like it's just endless Himal, endless mountains. And you just realize how small we are, like each person and the insignificance of our problems. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I know exactly what you mean, actually. Um, yeah. And I, and I, and I struggle when I come back to society, like I, there's the, the expedition low. So after I've been out and then just like the low that comes with that, but adapting to like, to be honest, like I haven't spent very much time in Canada in my adult life, but each time I come back, it's like culture shock. Like what people feel are their problems and just the, the size of things, homes, cars, and, you know, the connection always connected to technology where when I'm in nature, you know, I can let that stuff go and just appreciate the little things and yeah, how insignificant what many people think our challenges really are. The thing I always say when people ask, what was, you know, what was Nepal like? What was like climbing there? Like I said, there's nothing that makes you feel more insignificant and small than being surrounded by the Himalayas. That's what I tell people. So it's (laughs) funny that you, it's funny that you say that. Um, I'm going to put all the links in the show notes and everything, but um, good luck on your next expedition. 
Thanks so much. Yeah, I start one on March 5th and then I'll go all the way through October. So I think this is um, this is probably not going to air till maybe March. So it's gonna be, I mean, I'm, I, hopefully I'll be able to update people along the way. And I'm really looking forward to seeing your journey this year. And maybe we can chat after after you're finished and, and back. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, there will be there's some some base camps will have connection. It's crazy. Some of the places that you can actually even more than in Canada, I'm finding here in the Rockies, um, but some places like in Pakistan and Nepal, where you actually get mobile reception. Again, I'd rather not. But at the same time, I do know people like you and others in my international community are curious. And so I will connect as I can with appreciation for, for those cheers and love along the way from afar. Jill Wheatley, thank you for your time. This was a beautiful conversation. Oh, thank you so much. I'd love to do it again. Thanks for listening. For more Let's Take This Outside, go to letstakethisoutside.ca. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast. But we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.